1: Some random girl named Tara Hartwick, who's basically posting, saying, hey, um, my friends and I thought of a really cool idea. We're a group of roommates, and we're going to put our lives online.
0: Hi, I'm Madison Malone-Kercher. And I'm
2: Rachel Hampton, and you're listening to I See Why I In case you missed it, Slate's podcast about internet culture. Well, today's not exactly our podcast about internet culture, is it? It's not, but it's still an incredible show, and it is still about internet culture and we are very excited to share it with you.
0: Think of it as a little uh, Christmas gift we picked out special for UICY my guys
2: in case you missed it, Slate's got this incredible show called One Year. It's a podcast that focuses on telling stories from One year in our recent past that we may have missed or completely forgotten. Their current season is exploring the year 1995, which was a time when the internet was still in its infancy, if not basically a fetus. Episodes have covered things like the Oklahoma City bombing, a fertility clinic scandal, and the story we've got for you today is about what I think is best described as the first Internet soap opera?
0: I think that's a really good description. This story is weird and wild and about a small group of creators who, through what amounted to mostly just a series of interconnected blog posts, inspired one of the earliest instances of an online fandom. It's a story about online creativity, I'm gonna say it. It's a story about parasocial relationships, and it's a story about how not everything on the internet lasts forever. It's basically the kind of story Icy would have told if we had been making this podcast in 1995, which would have been hard for me as a three-year-old and even harder for Rachel.
2: I'm, I was not even thought of yet. <laughs> Make sure to check out all the other episodes of One Year 1995, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. And don't worry, we'll be back with y'all on Saturday with a fresh dose of Icy Without
0: further ado, here's producer Evan Chung telling the story of The Spot. Seriously, you're going to like it.
3: When Paul Camuso first logged onto the internet at the very beginning of the 1990s, he didn't find it all that exciting.
1: There really wasn't much anything. I mean, basically, there were bulletin boards. You know, there were forums, there was information, there was news services. Very, very basic, though. I mean, it was just all more tech related and nerd stuff.
3: Paul was working for the software company Lotus. If you weren't a tech geek like he was, chances are that you'd never heard of the internet, let alone used it.
1: They were text-only, non-graphical interfaces. Basically, you had to sort of keep a little notebook that had IP addresses. I mean, it was that simple back
3: in those days. But in 1995, everything was changing. The internet was becoming more accessible thanks to something called the World Wide Web.
4: The World Wide Web is the fastest-growing segment of the Internet, but most importantly, it is the most fun. The
3: Web was simple to navigate, with the arrival of search engines. Type in the topic and click on Search.
5: Oh, cool! Everything I need is right here.
3: And the Web was graphical, thanks to the slick new Netscape Navigator browser.
6: Programs like it are the future of the Internet.
0: But then, you
1: know, we had gotten to URLs, so it was a little bit easier to interact, and it was becoming a little bit more social.
3: The internauts of 1995 saw limitless potential to transform the planet.
6: Imagine a world where every word ever written, every picture ever painted, and every film ever shot could be viewed instantly in your home via an information superhighway. That's remarkable. Having the internet around is going to be very useful
7: there were some skeptics. You say, in the future, everyone's going to be wired and we'll all have to know computers. Aw, come on!
3: That's the astronomer Clifford Stoll. In February 1995, he published an article in Newsweek with the headline, The Internet? Bah. But like it or not, the internet was doubling in size every 53 days, according to one estimate. By the summer of 1995, everybody had heard of it, even if they didn't quite understand it.
5: What, what do you is internet
6: anyway? Internet is uh, that massive computer the network. Right. Mm-hmm. The one that's becoming really big now.
3: What it's- do you mean? that's very, How does one, what, what
4: do you write to it like mail?
3: It all seemed to have happened overnight. It was the summer of 95 when an online bookstore called Amazon opened for business. When people started listing their stuff for sale on AuctionWeb, soon to be renamed eBay. When Wired profiled a radical new experiment in cyber love called Match.com. And when multiplexes were showing cyber thrillers like The Net and Hackers.
5: Hide the planet! Hide the planet! Shut up and get in the car.
3: And it was that June when Paul Camuso discovered the website that would change his life. He found out about it from somebody on a message board.
1: Some random girl named Tara Hartwick, who was basically posting, saying, hey, um, my friends and I thought of a really cool idea. We're a group of roommates, and we're going to put our lives
3: online. Tara Hartwick's website didn't exist yet. She said it was going to be called The Spot.
1: And she was explaining a little bit of like how the setup was going to happen. We're going to do diary entries and we all live in Santa Monica at this beach house. So come join us as we launch on June 6th, 1995.
3: When that day arrived, he pointed his browser to www.thespot.com.
1: I clicked it and uh, it opened up and it said, come on in. So I clicked the come on in button and I got to the diary page.
3: The first thing he saw was a photo of Tara Hartwick, published hours earlier. She was blonde in her early 20s. And next to her picture, there was a welcome message.
6: The net gives us all an opportunity for self-expression in the most candid and provocative way, with a potential audience of 20 million and counting, and a captive audience as long as we don't disappoint. So I hope you guys out there will hang with us regularly at the spot share in the unpredictable wackiness that this place brings out in all of us.
3: At the top of the page, she'd written something in bold.
6: No box is big enough to contain our imaginations.
3: Then I thought that
1: was the coolest comment ever. And I was hooked. That's all it took. It took that one post to hook me.
3: Paul wasn't alone. The spot would go viral before the phrase going viral had even been invented. Reporters jockeyed for invites to Tara's house. And as the internet exploded, corporations saw the spot as a template for making billions. All this despite the fact that Tara, her roommates, her house, none of them existed. It felt real.
7: That's really all that there was to it. I mean, we were freaking, we were hot as hell because there was nobody like us. What we did was a big deal. We we changed the world.
3: On this week's episode, how an online soap opera revealed the power of the internet as a venue for creative expression and as a tool for destruction. This is one year, 1995, hitting the spot.
0: I have a special announcement for you today. Slate is having a holiday sale. For a limited time, we're offering our annual Slate Plus membership at $25 off for your first year. It's a great deal. Think of it like this. You pay 10, 15 bucks a month for your music and streaming subscriptions. And with Slate Plus, for less than $4 per month, you get member exclusive episodes from shows like Slow Burn, Amicus, Political Gab Fest, no ads on any of our podcasts, including ICYMI, and unlimited reading on the Slate site. And best of all, you'll be supporting our show and Slate's journalism. Sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash ICYMI+. Again, we're giving you $25 off your first year as a member through December 29th. So sign up now at slate.com slash ICYMI+. If debit is your
2: go-to card, discover things it's time you get rewarded, too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right, cash back isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back and there are no fees, period. Check out transaction eligibility in terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC.
3: The website that hooked Paul Camuso was not invented by a blonde woman in her early 20s.
7: This is Scott Zacharin. Uh, I am uh, the creator and producer of The Spot. Scott had been making movies since he bought a camcorder with his bar mitzvah
3: money. In 1995, he was in his early 30s, living in Los Angeles.
7: And he felt he was just one big idea away from stardom. I knew it was coming. You know, I was hoping that if I did something cool, Holly would notice, and then next thing you know, I was directing big movies. He'd actually written and directed a movie already, a
3: self-financed thriller. But distributors weren't interested. So he took a
7: job at the Playboy Channel. I became the director of on-air promotions, which meant how do you sell Wet n' Wild 6 different than Wet n' Wild 7?
3: That promotional work led him to his next job at an advertising agency. It was called Fatalin Collins, and it had an office overlooking the ocean in Marina del Rey. But Scott was tucked away in a back corner, far from the view. He was making radio spots and sales reels for Gold's Gym and thrifty Payless drugstores. They weren't the big Hollywood flicks he dreamed about, but Scott put everything into his work.
6: Scott is a giant kid. He was fun, and he had so many ideas. And he just loved to brainstorm and spitball and play with what if.
3: Lori Shires was Scott's assistant on the ad agency's production team.
6: Scott is the visionary, for sure. He, he always had the biggest dreams, and his enthusiasm was really infectious.
3: Scott's team was a small, tight-knit group, and none of them really wanted to work in the advertising business. Oh, no, no.
4: That job was always a means to an end. Troy Bolotnik was a producer on the team. That job was about giving us time to write screenplays, making connections so we could eventually make our own movies and things like that. Scott and his crew looked
3: for inspiration wherever they could find it. One day, it came from something on Troy's computer. I started playing a game called Mist. Mist was a CD-ROM puzzle game set on a
4: mysterious 3D island with amazingly beautiful graphics and imagery and really immersive sounds.
7: Scott was instantly captivated. You get caught. You get caught in this environment. Following the story, it drags you to the next thing, and you're always looking for what's the next clue. And it was really fascinating. The world building and the interactivity of Myst excited Scott. But that was
4: nothing compared to the next thing Troy showed him.
6: We were just in our little office and Scott was standing over Troy's shoulder.
4: You know, I was messing around on something called IRC, Internet Relay Chat. They were just chat rooms, endless endless chat rooms. I showed it to Scott and he lost his mind. He was just he I remember him getting mad at me for not telling him this existed before. Like, wh- why didn't you tell me this was here?
7: I spent a lot of time in those chat rooms. People love to talk about themselves. So I listen, I've always been a good listener. The most important thing for me is press a button, see how they interact. Scott quickly figured out that he'd get a better response if he didn't interact as himself. Literally, there were no women in there. And because, you know, men like to talk to women, that gave me an opportunity to um, become women.
3: He invented male personas too. But whenever he pretended to be a woman,
7: the people in the chat rooms would light up. As a matter of fact, one of them changed the title to the chat room that said, uh, there's a girl in here. I started to create a character called Tara Hartwick, uh, who was a 23-year-old film student. She idolized Martin Scorsese and, uh, you know, basically tried to do the best I could to, to capture that voice. I mean, did you ever feel a little bit weird that you were,
3: you know, pretending to be a woman when you weren't? No, you know, I didn't.
7: Honestly,
6: um, yes, it was weird. It was, <laughs> it was weird. It wasn't creepy weird. It was kind of like research for a film or something.
3: Scott believed that all of these people hanging out in chat rooms were itching for something to do, something to entertain them, and there wasn't
7: anything like that online. The internet was right there. There's an audience right there. There's an international audience right there. This is such a cool storytelling advice. I thought, okay, what can we do that uses the internet for what it is?
3: There had to be some way to harness the collaborative spirit of the internet, to build something immersive like Mist. He just had to figure out what that would look like. One night in early 1995,
7: Scott went to bed after a long evening online. I was so obsessed with the chat rooms, I actually started to dream about these people living in a house.
3: He woke up repeatedly, each time scribbling notes about his chat room characters inhabiting a space together. And the next day, he brought that paper with him to work.
6: And he said, I have this idea, come in. And so there's a huge white conference table. It takes up almost the whole room with all the chairs around it. And Scott said, I had this crazy dream.
7: I go, I have this idea to tell a story in ways that nobody has told before.
6: I think what Scott already had was that it was a house in Santa Monica. And he starts saying, you know, what if we could actually make this real?
3: They could make something that no one had tried yet an episodic show on the web. It would be about the relationships between these 20-somethings in a beach house. A kind of mashup of Friends, Melrose Place, and The Real World, some of the hottest shows on television. And the house would have a name, which would also be the name of the website, one
7: that Scott hoped would be prophetic. It was, let's have the spot on the internet. That's where they're going to come is to the spot.
6: We all kind of went, yeah. It just, it just, captured our imagination, yeah, let's play.
3: The whole production team was on board. Scott, Lori, Troy, and a video editor named Rich Tackenberg. But there was a lot to
4: figure out. I, I think we immediately started talking about the technology of it and how we were going to do it. The Spot couldn't be a TV show in the traditional sense, because
3: it was pretty much impossible to put video on the web. On the dial-up modems of 1995, it could take hours to download a 30-second movie file.
7: But Scott had an idea. So I'm like, okay, so we have these different characters. Everybody has a diary. They would write what
3: today we'd call blog posts. In a sense, the spot would be more like a serialized novel. But in the eyes of its creators, it was a show. And the diary entries were the episodes and actors would pose for photos to accompany the writing.
6: Once we kind of got that it was a still image and a journal entry, that became real. And Scott said, what if you, Laurie, were the main character?
3: Laurie would become Tara Hartwick, the persona Scott had created in the chat rooms. In the world of the show, the website was Tara's experimental art project. They laid it all out in Tara's first diary entry which I asked Lori to read.
6: I'm Tara Hartwick, a 23-year-old graduate film student trying to make it as a director. And I know I've got talent and a point of view, and I see no reason to hold back just because of the lack of funds to produce my celluloid dreams. And furthermore, I like collaborating, and my housemates are mostly into being involved. So this is our story.
3: They called themselves the Spotmates. They'd each write about the goings-on in their house. But
7: Tara had one big rule for her friends.
6: Just to make things interesting, we've agreed not to read each other's pages.
7: The thing that turned me on the most was the ability to hear these stories from the different characters' point of views.
3: There was Tara's roommate, Lon, a clownish, somewhat misogynistic aspiring actor. Then there was Michelle, a beautiful model who was smarter than everyone assumed. Carrie was a mousy bookstore employee. Jeff was the sullen and aloof owner
7: of the house they all lived in. And the team decided the Spot would have a dog. And Troy then said, what if he was Spotnik, Because he was the first dog in cyberspace. The team
3: went to work making the Spot real mapping out plot lines, coordinating photo shoots, hiring web developers. Scott's boss, the owner of the advertising agency, was excited by the project. He gave his blessing to use company resources and
7: even put in some seed money. You know, when he said to me, I want to put this in the agency, that was the flashpoint. I would have failed otherwise. Scott's boss hooked
3: him up with a publicist too. She reached out to internet cafes, a new type of business where you could pop in to buy a drink and surf the net. And she had flyers distributed outside screenings of the cyberpunk movie, Johnny Mnemonic. The year is 2021. It is no longer safe to transmit information. The Spot creative team did its marketing online.
6: We would go into these chat rooms and we'd say things like, hey, have you heard about this thing called The Spot? And hey, did you hear that they're having a party at The Spot? And all of a sudden, people were talking about the spot.
3: It was June 5th, 1995, the night before the launch. The team did one final promotional tour around the chat rooms. Then it was time to leave the office.
7: Everybody was like, "Okay, let's go. We'll see what happens on the spot. I could not deal with it. Scott never went
3: home. He spent the whole night in chat rooms, sharing the link and typing out the same three word message, hit the spot. After all that work, none of them knew what was gonna happen the next morning.
6: I mean, we hoped it would be interesting to people, but we had no idea. We had no idea. We'll be back in a minute.
3: Harry Zink worked in a technology lab for Disney Studios in Los Angeles. In June 1995, he was hanging around the office, surfing the web. And uh, there was a site out there called, like, Cool Site of the Day or something like that.
5: And so us nerds were pretty much always glued to that every day. And one day, thespot.com was featured on the Cool Site of the Day. I, I clicked on the link which took me to their front page. Oh, it's like a bunch of kids, they're in a beach house. And I just started exploring.
3: On the front page, enclosed in a circle, was a photo of a house, a couple stories tall, with a roof deck and a veranda. Harry found photos of the residents: three women, two men, all beautiful. Each photo led him to a diary entry posted earlier that day. With every click, Harry discovered something exciting. And you,
5: you go, wait, what was there before? And what's the next thing? and. And, and before you know it, it's like six hours later and you haven't actually done any work.
3: Michelle wrote about getting creepy phone calls from an ex-boyfriend. Lon confessed to knocking over Madonna's water glass. Carrie talked about being sexually harassed by her boss. And after a wild party at the spot on June 10th, Tara revealed that she'd made a pass at her film professor.
6: It was freaky, but the smell of vomit in the air actually worked on me like an aphrodisiac. I sensed the moment, and I went with it. I tried to kiss Professor Alex Samuels, and that's when he hit me with it. He's happily married. Sucks.
5: And so it was exciting, and it sucked a lot of us in at the lab, so it wasn't just me, but it was like a whole bunch of people that became daily readers at that
3: point. New posts from the Spotmates would go live seven days a week, sometime around midnight. Tara might write a poem or upload an extremely brief video.
6: Hi, this is my very own, very short film about love. Carrie, tell everybody out there about uh, your first experience with love. looking. Oh, I don't think I can tell everyone about that. Come
5: no,
0: on. I...
1: The idea that I could watch a soap opera in real time, online, that was amazing. That was the most amazing thing in the whole world at the time.
3: Paul Camuso found the spot hours after it launched. Dialing into the net and catching up with the spotmates became his evening routine, even though he was being charged by the minute to go online. I would be online like sometimes a couple hours a night, and the
1: bills would come quarterly. So I would get literally a manila envelope that was like this thick with every single call I made for the spot. So I was paying at the time like $4,400 over a three-month period to connect to an internet site. (laughs) A a, a little obsessive, maybe, and and it was worth it. For me, in my mind, it was worth it.
3: Scott Zakarin had no idea how many people would get lured in by the spot. A survey published in the fall of 1995 said that only 3% of Americans had ever logged onto the web.
7: I remember I went in and said, hey, you know, if we get like 5,000 views on this first day, we know we got something. They actually got 15,000 hits. The next day, there were 55,000. And at that point, it was giddy excitement.
4: That's when we started looking at each other and going, oh my gosh, this is going to be enormous. Visitors to the spot weren't just reading
3: diary entries. They could also interact directly with the spot mates.
6: So with each post, with each journal entry, we would kind of ask a question or invite the audience to email us, and we'd email them back. So- In character. In character, yeah. Oh yeah, in character.
4: Like we would schedule chats where the spotmates who lived in the house would be online, within context of the stories. I have this big problem. Should I tell so and so about this or should I not? Can you guys talk to me at four o'clock and help me with my issue?
6: There, at one point, there were so many emails coming in, and I couldn't do them within business hours. So I remember doing something so crazy, and it was, it was printing out all of the emails that were sent to Tara Hartwick, and putting them in a binder and taking them home on the weekend and then handwriting my responses as Tara, and then later going back to the office and typing in the emails.
3: For Spot fans, the center of all this connection was the site's message board. It really catapulted interactivity to the
5: stratosphere. It allowed all these fans now to interact with each other. We're not alone. I'm not the one guy who loves the Spot. There's like 40, 60, 100 more people out there that are liking it and that are talking about it.
3: On the spot board, Harry and Paul voiced their concerns about the choices the spotmates were making. And the spotmates responded.
5: And that's something televised entertainment never had. I mean, literally, you could you could start a rant about one of the characters making a mistake as she's going on a date with this stalker guy. And then she would come back, and she would go, oh, such and such was so right about this. Uh, and And, you know, you felt you were a little bit part... Of that character's conversation and life.
1: It's sort of like somebody who's famous. They're on the internet and they mentioned me. Oh my God. Uh, Being a tech geek that I was, you know, I was like, oh
3: wow, I got a pretty girl to like say hey, you know. (laughs) And at this point, you understand these to be real people? Yes. The Spot creators played coy not giving any indication that the spotmates were fictional characters.
6: I think Scott wanted to blur the lines between fantasy and reality.
7: We thought that eventually people would figure it out. So I would say that the idea was, let's make it real for as long as we can. Not everyone on the message board was buying it.
5: With you know some people just going like, dude, it's all scripted, you don't know what you're talking about. And I was on that side of the people of like, no, it could be real.
3: What made it seem plausible to you that they could be real?
5: Well, it, it all felt well, very, very gritty. It didn't feel like a slick production. So it made sense. It was good world building.
1: And, you know, and one of the first videos that they did was Tara on the beach. And she said, if, if I, I wasn't
6: was... real, could I do this? <laughs>
1: and she twirls on the beach. And that was it. I think it's like 10 seconds. It took forever to download
6: they did not really understand that we were making up a show because nothing like this had ever been done before. And so when we said that there was a party in Santa Monica at the spot, you know, people were wanting to find the address and show up.
3: Harry Zink lived in LA, and he knew the surefire way to prove the spotmates existed was to track them down and knock on their door.
5: So I spent a weekend literally driving up and down Santa Monica Beach, Venice Beach, parking the car, getting out, looking for the beach house, right? And I would find houses that had parts of it where I'm like, oh, this is, oh no, it's got a different roof. And oh, this looks like the veranda of, no, no, it's it's different.
3: He never found the house because it didn't exist. The image on the site was a chimera of a bunch of different beach homes. The debate over whether the spot was real reached its climax on July 15th, 1995 one fan challenged the model character, Michelle, to prove that her diary entries weren't scripted ahead of time.
5: He goes like, well, if it's real, take a picture standing in a bikini in front of a refrigerator holding up a strawberry. And just a couple of hours later, on Michelle's diary entry, there was a picture of her in a yellow bikini, holding the strawberry in front
1: of the refrigerator.
5: Calling out the poster who made that challenge with words to the effect like, eat your heart out, such and such.
1: At that point, I was like, oh, wow,
3: this is cool. The photos on the site were taken weeks in advance, typically. The actors were only around sporadically for shoots. It was a stroke of luck that they happened to be on set the day that challenge was posted.
6: And we scrambled to get Kristen Harold, the actress, in front of a refrigerator in a bikini holding a strawberry. They loved that. They went crazy that all of a sudden they actually could influence the storyline. And that's part of what made the spot special.
7: We would put out a hoop for the audience to jump through, and it turned out they would give us the hoop back. I mean, the audience was so powerful.
3: The actors who played the spotmates didn't do any of the writing on the site. The Woman with the Bikini and Strawberry, her diary entries were written by Troy.
4: I wrote the character of Michelle, who was beautiful. She was played by an actress who had previously, I think, been in Playboy. And I tried to write her against type and make her very thoughtful and pensive and, you know, sort of deep.
3: Laurie Shires was an exception. She was both an actor and a writer. She gave Tara Hartwick a face and a voice drawing inspiration from her own life.
6: In the spot, we had planned to have Tara take this trip to Paris and meet a boy. And two years prior, I had been to Paris and had this intense thing with a boy. Home was a little two-room cottage near La Place de la contrescarpe We had a view of all the clotheslines in the area and the very tip of Notre Dame. I closed my eyes as he kissed me and said over and over, welcome back, Moshiri. It was really creatively fulfilling to use all these pieces of my life in a new way. I loved it.
3: The storylines were not always so true to life. The spot house appeared to be haunted. Its original owner had been murdered in the bathtub by his spurned lover. A clown. Naturally, seances were held. Hey guys. The goal of the spot had been to get noticed. And that happened
4: very quickly. Because it was right at this time where the media, the mainstream media, was starting to become aware of the web. And so they got wind of it, and that was it. And it
7: was just, it was so exciting. I mean, we were being called by everybody. It's called The Spot, and it's the first interactive episodic series on the worldwide system of
5: connected computers known as the internet.
3: The Spot was a whole new art form. It was called a webisodic, a cybersoap, a sit.com. The Spot won the very first Webby Award. And already there were copycats, including a parody set in a Missouri trailer park called The Squat. The site wasn't generating any revenue at this point, but it seemed like that could change. NBC approached them about some kind of internet TV hybrid. Microsoft and AOL saw the potential too they began developing their own online entertainment divisions, a merger of the Silicon Valley and showbiz worlds that became known as SillaWood. And nothing was generating more buzz than the spot.
4: I remember it happened so fast.
6: And all of a sudden, yeah, that idea that maybe we could be the next big thing was crossing everybody's mind. Move over, Melrose. there's a new spot in town. (laughs) It was becoming
3: impossible to sustain the ruse that the spot was real, now that CNN and Extra were doing features on the site. Creator Scott Zacharin believes his show offers fans something primetime TV programs can't, the chance to read whatever stories they want
5: and to talk by computer with their favorite characters through electronic messages known as email.
3: Online sleuthing had uncovered the site's connection to the ad agency Talon Collins. The fact that Spotnik the dog was writing emails might have been a giveaway too. Fans like Paul Camuso and Harry Zink, who had defended the authenticity of the spot, they had to grapple with the fact that they'd been duped. And
1: you know what, didn't matter. That was the weird thing. The majority of the spot fans didn't care.
5: It's like watching a good movie. If, if a movie makes you suspend disbelief, you accept the world that it builds.
3: The veil had been lifted, but the fans still interacted with the characters exactly as they had before. The spotmates, they had become a part of their lives. Come on,
6: Lon, how many women That's do ridiculous. you guys this? That's ridiculous, that doesn't I mean, you matter, she was
4: special. She's, like she's so special, girl, God, girl, please girl, give girl. us a chance. I love you, I need you,
3: I need you! Lon became convinced that their new friend, Audrey, had a secret identity. Michelle nearly drowned trying to contact the ghost that was haunting her. And Spotnik the dog vanished without a trace. Not everyone was a fan. A New York Times columnist called the Spot, a soap
7: opera so thin it makes Melrose Place look like war and peace. I don't think we were writing it to be high art. We were writing it to be entertaining. We were writing it to be funny. It all depends on what you call high art, right? The spot didn't feature nudity,
3: but it could get raunchy, like with the storyline about Lon's nymphomaniac girlfriend,
4: and with putting the actresses in bikinis, with or without strawberries. One of the things that I didn't love about the spot was that we played too much to the male audience who wanted to see pretty women. I just think we pandered too much. I think if we probably, I'm guessing, I don't know, I'm theorizing that if we had more women writers, maybe that would have helped avoid it, but probably not. It was just, it was the direction. Scott was a very strong personality and this is where he led us. And that's where we went.
7: You know, it was obviously, you know, looks are a way to to bring people in, especially then. Uh, But I didn't have anything with the women that were not with the men. If you look at it, the guys were also hot and in bathing suits.
6: There wasn't a lot of care around, is this an actual woman's perspective? And I, you know, was the only sometimes dissenting voice in the room, you know, it I hesitate to get too deep with this because it wasn't meant to be any kind of political statement or anything more than it was. We didn't have the time to be precious about it because if we were going to put something up every single day, sometimes it was going to be good and sometimes it was going to suck. And that's okay because the next day you had a chance to do it all over again.
3: Every day the spot got updated. And every day, the site's obsessive fans devoured the new entries and debated the spotmates' latest shenanigans. But in January 1996, seven months after the site launched, Harry Zink started to feel like something was
5: off. This whole story arc started about the professor who was, you know, the mentor for Terra, wanting to destroy the spot and the spotmates defending it.
3: Tara's film professor fabricated documents showing that he owned the spot. The professor took over the beach house, and the spotmates vowed to fight back. And, and
5: people were like, oh, that's a great story that's going on. And I was like, there's more to this. There's more brewing between the lines here. We, we got those hints. I, I, I couldn't directly put my finger on that, but that was really the, the storyline of this is the death of the spot.
3: We'll be back in a minute. The success of the spot surprised everyone. And as the daily hits grew, so did the scrutiny. Troy Bolotnik could feel the pressure
4: ratcheting up. It went from being us on a pirate ship, just doing this kind of sneakily at night, to this is a business. We have to monetize this the pressure to monetize it became very strong and we were you know kind of under a microscope then by now the spot
3: had started to get some revenue from banner ads sponsors like k-swiss honda and activision had all signed on they'd been brought in by and collins the ad agency where scott troy and laurie were employees they'd started the spot as a scrappy side project but by the end of 1995 the ad agency had invested five hundred thousand dollars to keep it going. I think it really
4: started to to go south when the head of the agency started to get territorial over it in the sense of saying, "Well, this is ours. This belongs to the agency because we you did it on our time and our computers and used our artists and you have jobs here." The agency was actually happy with its investment. They were so encouraged
3: that they decided to build a whole stable of online shows, a network called American CyberCast. Scott Zakran thought it was a terrible idea.
7: It's too soon, I mean, there's no question. We hadn't quite figured this one out completely. You know, whatever magic happened with the spot, that doesn't necessarily mean that's gonna happen in other shows. American CyberCast had some big investors, like
3: Intel and CAA. And Scott says, the more money that was at stake, the more the company started interfering
7: suddenly they were looking at the numbers and when they looked at the numbers they were like oh this character is more popular let's use that character and i'm like but if we do that we're not telling the story right and at that point we're like well if we can't do the show the way we've been doing it what are we doing the spot
3: fan harry Zink had been right there was more to that storyline about tara's film professor taking control of the house the site's creators were sending a not-so-coded message. Paul Camuso was startled by what happened next.
7: Tara
1: just disappeared one day, and you know, nothing was found. Nobody knew where,
3: where she went, nobody knew if she was alive, she was dead. The evidence suggested that Tara had been abducted by her professor, and possibly murdered. And then you, know, you have all these people going, what the hell's happening? What's going on? Oh my God. Fans of the spot were used to over-the-top storytelling, but this was different. Tara was the show's backbone, the one who had beckoned them to the site. To see this kind of violence against her, it was shocking. In May 1996, the LA Times published an anguished plea from a spot fan.
4: I am confused as well as worried. I never imagined that I could get to know someone over the internet the way I've gotten to know Tara Hardwick. Tara has the most amazing combination of intelligence, creativity, and beauty of any woman I have yet observed. Tara, if you are out there, just come home to your brother and your friends. If anything has happened to you, I will never be able to erase you from my memory.
3: But it was too late to save Tara.
6: It was really hard to walk away from something that we had invested so much time and energy in. It felt unnerving to not even have a hand in in what would go down.
3: Lori Shires, the face and voice of Tara, had already left the spot. So had Scott, Troy, and their co-creator, Rich Tackenberg. Scott had negotiated an exit for all of them. The website they'd all built now belonged entirely to American CyberCast. The Spot had launched less than a year earlier. It looked poised to become the future of online entertainment and the vehicle to stardom that they'd all been searching for. And they were walking away from it.
6: When we left, it felt like there was unfinished business, for sure. I wasn't done. I wanted to feel complete with it, and it didn't really feel complete.
3: American CyberCast vowed to keep The Spot going a new staff took over the diaries and tried to channel the remaining characters' personalities. But spot fans weren't buying it.
5: After a while, you know, you know how your friends are. You know their personalities. You know how they react to certain things. Like, you could almost finish their sentences for them. Suddenly, everybody spoke different. They all spoke with a different voice. And those were voices we were no longer familiar with. Those were voices we we actually didn't like anymore.
1: They didn't seem to even know who they were, let alone what The history was.
3: American Cybercast was trying to build that stable of online shows that it had promised. It launched a sci-fi project called Eon 4 and a mystery series called The Pyramid. Neither of them gained much traction. The company was in financial trouble.
5: I saw the whole thing just coming undone, and that essentially happened eventually when the world-famous Spot fan boycott started.
1: (laughs) How Harry, you know, gave us all a a reputation Um, (laughs) as a one-man show. He just completely, like, just caused the most collateral damage he
3: possibly could. It started in November 1996, when a friend Harry knew from the Spot message board called him up.
5: Very agitated, but said, they just fired Jeff. They laid him off.
3: As a cost-cutting measure, American CyberCast had let go of one of the last remaining staffers from the original spot, someone the fans knew and loved.
5: To us, this was the last goodwill connection you had to the fans, and you got rid of this guy. We didn't care
3: for what reason. Harry was angry about how the spot had changed and about the corporate overlords he thought were wrecking it.
5: The only thing that matters to these guys is hits. I'm like, you want to get somewhere, you have to take those hits away from them.
3: Harry had a plan. He opened up his clunky laptop and started building his own site with its own message board. Fans could gather there without generating hits for the actual spot.
5: And in about an hour, an hour and a half, the spot fans board was launched. And I go, hey, you guys go to town, let everyone know. And remember, every click you take away from them, hurts them.
3: Later that evening, he checked in on his new creation.
5: And it was it was packed. It was live conversations rivaling if not exceeding what the spot board actually had. So I'm like, oh let me check what the traffic on the spot board is. And it was dead. It was Tumbleweed City. And pretty much the next day there were like Plaintiff cries from the characters, hey, where is everybody? Come on, guys. Some fans tentatively came back and I kind of scolded them at the time saying, you're just letting the terrorists win.
3: Were there people who took issue among the fans with the strategy that you were implementing?
5: Oh, Paul did. Paul was completely disagreeing with my
1: strategy.
3: He just, he went way overboard, Harry. Harry takes it to
1: 11. I mean, he really does. Everything is 11 with Harry. And I'm like, look, let's just bring it down. No, 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 we have to. This is what we have to do. We have to do this. And
3: I'm like, oh, my God, like, Harry, you're on your own. Paul didn't like the spot's new direction either, but he couldn't understand Harry's motivations. You can't bring the spot back because the actors are gone. You know, the writers are gone. Like, what's the end goal
1: here?
5: Uh, The end goal was exactly that, putting them out of business.
3: This was the ultimate in fan interactivity. Breaching the fourth wall with a grenade. The fans had made the spot what it was. And if it couldn't be the way they remembered it, it would have to be destroyed. Harry didn't stop at trying to siphon off the spot's traffic. He also targeted the site's advertisers. We don't like you supporting these guys. You had a very
5: successful program here. These new guys who took it over alienated every one of the fans, got everybody disgruntled, and now nobody wants your product anymore because you're associated with something that destroyed something we liked. And within a matter of weeks, they lost pretty much 99% of their advertisers.
3: Paul thinks that Harry is inflating his impact. But American CyberCast was clearly spooked. Paul says he got a call from someone within the company.
1: And she was basically asking me, like, well, what can we do about Harry? And I'm just like, look, you can't do anything about Harry. You have to ignore him. He'll go away if you don't give him any ammunition. The last thing you want to tell Harry is to shut up. When people do that, it just pushes my button that says, oh, they want to play.
3: Let's see where that takes us. The same publications that had covered the spot's rise now gave regular updates on the war between the network and its fans. American Cybercast told the LA Times that the protest was Harry's single-handed effort and that he was bitter about being turned down for a job at the company, which Harry denies. In December 1996, American Cybercast held an in-person summit with the fans. Harry says he was specifically not invited. And he wasn't interested in brokering any kind of peace.
5: I cared about the spot. You guys destroyed the spot. And this isn't like a vindictive, oh, you took my toy away, now I'm going to take your toy away. But I'm like, you've hurt a lot of people. You've put a lot of people basically out of jobs because of your own ego thing or whatever. Let's, Let's teach them a lesson. Let's show them you can't do this. The end goal was essentially the bankruptcy of American CyberCast.
3: Isn't that also then taking jobs away from people?
5: Well, yeah, but these are, these are the people who took jobs away from people.
3: On January 15th, 1997, American CyberCast laid off most of its staff. Just as Harry had hoped, it was filing for bankruptcy. It's hard to say how much of a role Harry's campaign actually played in that. It was clear that the network was not working out. They had wanted to create an empire of internet shows. But audiences just weren't that interested in anything that wasn't the original spot. Scott Zachron had been trying to get past his old creation too. He had led his creative team out of the ad agency, and he was sure that this was the beginning of bigger things for all of them.
7: Okay, it's about the people, it's about the team, and
6: we'll go start something new, and we're gonna make it even better than the spot. I mean, I think his confidence saw all of us through to where we would end up next. He, and he, I mean, he had confidence and bravado that he did not earn. It's just incredible.
3: Scott, Laurie, Troy, and Rich Tackenberg launched a company called Lightspeed Media. It created web content for clients
7: like Activision and Playboy. But that's not all they wanted to do. I think I had a little bit of a competitive feeling about the spot. Um, and I wanted to beat it with my next show. That next show was called Grape Jam. It was
3: about improv comedians and featured members of the LA comedy troupe The Groundlings. It was in many ways a more advanced version of the spot. The technology of the internet was rapidly improving and Grape Jam offered streaming audio and a lot more videos. You're short, you eat your own vomit, and you have no testicles. I'm just kidding. Grape Jam had its fans But like the new American CyberCast shows, it just never took off. When The Spot launched in June 1995, there were fewer than 25,000 websites. A year and a half later, there were 650,000. The Spot helped fuel some of that growth, but now, the odds of a single website breaking through were a lot slimmer. The spot, it turned out, was one of a kind.
5: You know when you go apartment hunting and you, you look at 20 apartments, and then you walk into one and you go, that's it. And it's that kind of blink moment where you see a show and it just immediately resonates with some magical things within you. That glom onto it, that it hits all the right notes. And there hasn't really been anything like that out there. In
3: 1997, the remaining Spot characters posted their final diary entries. One of them said, I know that the Spot House will always be here, and the Spot Project will be a rock solid icon in the history of the net forever. Today, the Spot has basically vanished from the internet. The diary entries and the photos and the threads on the message board, they're all gone. The only person I know of who has a complete copy of it is Harry Zink, and that includes the Spot's creators.
6: I, I mean, I wish I could access it, even to show my son what the experience was like, but, I mean, it's just not there, and that's, that's a bummer.
4: Uh, I don't sit here bitter about it at all, but... Nobody, nobody knows about this anymore. The, I meet very, very few people who ever heard of it right, or have been aware that this existed. And you have to kind of be like, yeah, this was a big deal. Despite all its initial promise, the entire
3: format of webisodic shows disappeared from the internet. In 1998, AOL and Microsoft slashed their interactive content divisions. A big part of the spot's original appeal was its interactivity. But Troy thinks ultimately that's what held it back.
4: I think people started to figure out that there's two kinds of entertainment. There's lean back and lean forward, right? And the, the mass public doesn't want to lean forward for their entertainment. They wanted to just come home, sit on the couch and watch Friends, right, and, and escape. They didn't want to make, because interactivity requires effort and energy. In many ways, the spot was a cultural dead
3: end. But Scott Zacharin's initial hunch that there's an audience on the web dying to be entertained. That was right. The spot presaged the forces that would come to dominate the internet. The rise of blogging platforms like LiveJournal and of YouTube creators with millions of followers. Artists like Issa Rae would accomplish exactly what Scott had set out to do, making the leap from independent web shows to mainstream stardom. And with the rise of streamers like Hulu and Netflix, any distinction between internet series and TV shows has basically evaporated. It'd be going too far to say that the spot inspired those trends. But the spot was there first. At a time in internet history when there was no roadmap.
5: There was more like a really
3: exciting journey
5: into the unknown and into new stuff. And people came out with some really imaginative ideas back then and some really shitty ideas as well. It felt like a frontier kind of like environment where you always saw something new.
3: The spot fan community kept on going, even after the diary entries stopped. Harry and Paul live near each other in California now.
1: And yeah, and Harry, um, you know, as as horrible of a person as he appears to be online, he isn't that bad of a person in real life. I mean, the, the, the one thing I've taken away from the Spot over these 20 plus years is that what a great group of people that this, this idea brought together. It brought together so many people from all over the place. 26 years, and they're still friends of mine. It was the coolest experience ever with a, with a website. And I don't think it can be duplicated. It
3: really can't. The Spot team members moved on to other things. Laurie Shires is a creative development coach now. Troy Belotnik is launching a Spirits brand. Scott Zacharin has created lots of projects since The Spot. He was an early adopter of MySpace as an entertainment platform, and YouTube as well. But he hasn't recaptured the glory of that one great idea he had in 1995.
7: Oh, I really miss it. The Spot, it it was magic. It was just magic. I very much, in the years since, feel the emotional pang of not being able to continue the spot. It is my favorite thing I ever made. There's nothing like it. I, I, I miss it terribly. I would do it tomorrow, you know, if, if the opportunity was there.
8: Evan Chung is one year's producer. After we finished reporting this episode... Scott Zacharin told us that he'd worked out a deal with the rights holders and that he's now planning to relaunch thespot.com. If you like what you're hearing and want to support One Year, you should sign up for Slate Plus. Members listen to all of our episodes ad-free, and they get an exclusive episode at the end of our season that's all about the making of our series on 1995. One way to sign up for a subscription is directly in your Apple Podcasts app. Just go to apple.co slash one year. Next time on One Year 1995, when a serial rapist strikes the college town of Ann Arbor, Michigan, a DNA investigation ensnares more than 100 innocent black men. All the nurses are standing around. And they're looking at you, man. There's
5: nothing worse than a woman with her hands on her hips looking at you like you're a killer. It's the worst deal in the world.
8: This episode was written and reported by Evan Chan. It was edited by Laura Bennett. One Year is produced by Evan Chung and me, Josh Levine. Madeline Ducharme is our assistant producer. Additional production help came from Shana Roth with editorial direction by Loewen Liu and Gabriel Roth. You can send us feedback and ideas and memories from 1995 at at Slate.com. And you can call us on the One Year hotline at 203-343-0777. We'd love to hear from you. Our mix engineer is Merritt Jacob. The artwork for one year is by Jim Cook. Digital Babylon by John Geerland and Eva Sanesh kedar And Open TV by Amar Jean Christian were valuable resources for this episode. Special thanks to Rich Tackenberg, Russell Collins, Charlie Flint, Joshua Hansick, Maria Gigliotti, Amar Jean Christian, Benjamin Frisch, Jared Holt, Derek John, Holly Allen, Katie Rayford, Asha Saluja, Amber Smith, Seth Brown, Rachel Strom, June Thomas, and Chow Tu. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more from 1995 next week.